I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement and the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today. I'm your host, Dan Zintek. We talk about current issues facing law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigation. This week, uh, we're just going to talk about some of the things that have hit the news for uh, policing over the past couple of weeks. A couple of things that happened in the news in the election that we had and the laws that have been passed. We've talked for a while about the legalization of marijuana, and some of the cities, or states actually, have legalized recreational marijuana such as Arizona, New Jersey, South Dakota, Montana, and medically it has been approved for medical marijuana in Mississippi. But the one that really stood out, the one that I'd like to talk about today is you had the decriminalization of hard drugs, which I don't think was on anybody's radar that this would possibly be something coming up, obviously in their area, I guess it was, but in Oregon. Now, when I first thought of that, I was thinking in reference to the defunding of police, the riots that we've had and those things. And when you think about that, we've had it in Oregon. We've had it in Portland. Uh, two and a half hours away from that is Seattle. So Washington State has been known for the decriminalization or the legalization, I should say, of marijuana. But so one of the things to talk about is the difference between decriminalization and legalization of drugs. So legalization of drugs, which such as in Washington State or in Colorado for recreational marijuana, means that you can legally possess that drug. You can go into a dispensary, you can uh, get the drug for recreational use, no different than going and buying alcoholic beverage uh, to get intoxicated on. Decriminalization means it's still against the law, you cannot legally possess these things, but they have lowered the the offense. They've lowered the um, the conditions, what's going to happen to you, the consequences of having these drugs. So me speaking just from the state of Texas and our laws that are affect here, uh, and we're talking about the hard drugs. That's the thing that I think really shocked a lot of people is we're talking about cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines, and the consequences of those drugs are felonies. Any amount is a felony. And there's consequences that go with a felony. There's years in prison. There's numerous fines. There's a loss of uh, rights to own a handgun. There's a loss of rights to vote. Uh, many different consequences that come from you committing a felony the loss of ever getting many jobs in the future. So the thought behind lowering those to, in this case, not even um, a misdemeanor of jail time, but this is just a fine only, the idea behind it is a thought, and it's certainly been a, a conversation that many have had, is do we have people in prison taking up the felony system with recreational drug users someone that has used a small amount of cocaine heroin methamphetamines are they in prison now by my experience as a police officer and what i've seen through the judicial system 
is that if they are in prison, it is usually not just a small amount. It's usually a person who over and over and over and over again has been offered drug treatment through drug court, through many different services, and still is uh, committing these crimes. So what Oregon has proposed, or I guess what they've passed, what they've passed is if you get caught with heroin, small amounts, uh, so I'm not sure what their amount base is, but a small amount, so still if you have large amounts of any of these drugs, it's still a crime, there's still stiff penalties for that, but if you have a small amount, what they would consider a personal use, a recreational amount for these drugs, I guess you get to choose, but the two options are a $100 fine or going into a rehab to receive assistance to get off of those type of drugs. Their idea to fund that is coming from their legalization of marijuana. So in legalizing marijuana, they've taxed marijuana. There's fees associated with operating a dispensary with selling marijuana and these type of things. So that is going to fund, I guess, these rehab centers. So one of my concerns, I guess, thoughts on this is from my experience being in law enforcement for 29 years and seeing drug users and seeing people that their lives have been affected, their lives have been ruined by these drugs families have been affected in dealing with constant drug users the biggest question that comes up is most of the time a person getting help for being on drugs requires in my opinion and experience them wanting to get help if the option is paying a fine or getting some help and they get to go, and I'm not sure what the construction of this, if it stays voluntary, if they have to check themselves in for a certain period of time. There's many questions, and I don't have those answers as far as what the actual program is going to look like in Oregon. But if it is voluntary, that they can be there for a short period and check themselves out, and then I guess they don't pay the $100, I'm not sure how that works. But I can tell you from my experience, if they're only going to rehab or they're only going to treatment to satisfy not paying a fine, to satisfy a family member wanting them to receive help, someone wanting them to receive help, the success rate is very low. If they're not wanting the help, and we've seen that over and over when they've gone into the prison system or gone into the jail system and there is drug court and there are options for them to try to receive some type of treatment. And I am not dismissing the level and the amount of addiction and the going back to the drug and how hard it is once they're in that lifestyle and the friends that they're around and the opportunities that they no longer have because of them being sentenced and those things and all those obstacles that they now have in their life. But still, it's a choice. And I sort of reflect back to in dealing with uh, the homeless population. There are certain people on the streets that I've seen throughout my years in law enforcement that 
as surprising as it would sound to the average citizen, they want to be on the streets. They, they actually want to be homeless. And I know that that blows a lot of people's minds that, you know, no one would want to be homeless. And don't get me wrong, there's certain people that are on the streets that know it's, you know, uh, many people are just a few paychecks away from being homeless if they didn't have a house, weren't able to pay their mortgage, weren't able to pay for their rent. But there are some people, whether due to addiction, due to mental illness, due to just life choices, that they want to live on the streets. And in the same aspect and in comparison, there are people that do drugs that they want to do drugs. They have no desire to receive help. They have no desire to get off the drugs. They are uh, perfectly happy with being on it, with the consequences of it, and they have no desire to correct that. This has been compared to uh, other countries that have tried different treatment plans. And uh, two that I've seen in comparison are Portugal and the Philippines. And, you know, in uh, Portugal, where they have decriminalized drugs and they have offered the treatment and these type of things, they've seen uh, some positive results um, over the course of 10 years of doing that. They've seen a decrease. I'm not sure at the level that, that people would expect or, or that would be acceptable to call it that this, uh, that there are not other factors that cause this decrease, but that this has helped or not. Then you have the extreme in the Philippines where uh, they have decided that uh, even to the point of killing drug dealers and to uh, go out and round people up that are using drugs and are violent against them, that that certainly in the course of them doing it, besides the fact that they have taken out some drug cartels, it hasn't decreased the amount of drug use, the amount of drugs that are there. Uh, they, they're still coming, right? So there are certain models that have been tried in other countries, and whether it's, you know, it's certainly worth, I guess, exploring. I mean, if, if the end result, if, if we went with the idea that this is going to work, if we went with the idea that by getting someone help, that they then did not use the drug. But if you remember some episodes ago, we talked to Vinny Montez, the comedian slash police officer from Colorado, because I had, um, I had questions in reference to Colorado and legalization of marijuana. Many people have gone there for the use of marijuana. And I asked him, by legalizing it, has it cut down on the illegal use of marijuana? Is the illegal stuff gone? Because that, that was the first thing that people had talked about, was if we legalize it, then and we tax it, and we can make tons of money from it, and we don't have uh, the illegal, and we don't have the cartel, and we don't have these things. And he said no, that it didn't change anything. I mean, it's... You still, you certainly have the, the legalization. You have people using the dispensaries and you have people that are legally obtaining it, but the black market's still there. It's alive and well. It has not decreased it in any way. Uh, you still have a legal activity related to the drugs to get the drugs, which is another problem that is being ignored, I guess, in, in talking about Oregon is many people that use drugs uh, 
are, are not working. They still have to get money for the drugs. Again, it's not legalized, so they're still getting it on the black market. They're still getting it through illegal uh, ways. So by doing so, many of those are committing crimes, and, and we certainly have linked drugs to, to violence, to theft crimes, to robberies and, and such that lead to an increase in criminal activity. Again, back to the main purpose, if you can get them off the drugs and decrease the drug use, and I mean, right now Oregon is, is a, a place that I have no doubt that, um, you know, sociologists are, are dying to do research, right? You have numbers of what it was before, you have numbers of what it's going to be, and and I look forward to seeing uh, what the end result, I'm concerned about what that end result is going to be. I think that people are going to go there for the purpose to do drugs. This is also a state that already is suffering with a relationship between police officers and its community. We have seen the riots in Portland. We have seen this clash between police and their citizens. We have seen them defunding police departments and you're about to increase, because there's no other way around it, you're going to increase drug use. By increasing the drug use, we already have a problem in this country with heroin use and heroin overdose. And we've been trying to address this by putting Narcan in police officers' hands because sometimes they're the the first to the scene prior to EMS or anybody else getting there that they're able to save lives by using Narcan on heroin overdoses. I think that that's going to increase. And if you've defunded your police, if you don't have the same number of officers out there, and I know, I know what the conversation is. I know what the talk is that they're going to provide other services with that money. I've seen the talk of the defunding. I've seen where they want to cut $16 million out of a budget. In Austin, Texas, they talked of cutting, or, or they did, they cut one-third, I think it was $125 million, something of that nature, but it was one-third of the budget for Austin police. In talking to someone today, they had recently been to Austin, and the one thing that stood out that was different uh, from times that they had been there before was the amount of homeless that were in the city. Uh, and one of the issues, one of the things that I've seen with this defunding is you still got a police. I mean, people are still calling for the police. They still need help. And the most common thing the that police departments have answered with is, okay, well, we got to prioritize. We have to decide what is the most important thing to go to. What's the most important thing that our citizens need help with. And so what I've seen is that uh, police officers aren't going. I mean, not by like a personal choice that they're not going. I mean, they're, they're recreating policy uh, that we're not going to theft calls, uh, file a report online, uh, call it in. If you have an accident, even with injuries, uh, just fill out the paperwork, uh, go online and get your case number. Uh, many things are going online. Many things are done just by calling dispatch to get a number, but no one's coming. No one's investigating it. 
we know you need this for insurance purposes, but reality, the car burglaries and thefts and financial fraud and all the many things that are nonviolent, but certainly an impact to economics and security and society are not getting answered. And there's that balance. I mean, that balance is what do you go to? You have to keep the officers available to go to the disturbance calls, to the assaults, to the sexual assaults, to the crimes against children, and the things that have to be addressed and needing to be addressed. So where do you cut back? I mean, you can't keep going to the uh, garage that got burglarized and the weed eater is stolen and uh, the cars that got burglarized and no one is injured. Now, the, the sad part about that is that the cars that got burglarized they had guns in them and now you have more guns on the street by people that are committing crimes that are going to lead to violence, but officers aren't going to be working those burglaries. They're not going to be tracking down that person. And it now is delayed to, I guess, them finding the person on a traffic stop with the gun. Uh, hopefully not to the point that they've committed a violent act with this gun. And now you're going to be investigating that when possibly with the proper funding, the proper coverage out there, you would have had the detectives on the street that were capable of, of settling those burglaries. And talking about investigators, that's, that's another move, is because they've lost patrol officers due to defunding the police and cutting back on budgets, the, the first line of defense are patrol officers. They're the ones that are on the street. So where do we cut back? And one of the first places I saw this was in Chicago. Chicago had one, I guess probably still does, has a very high murder rate. They took detectives out of homicide. They took detectives uh, out of investigative roles and put them on the streets because they felt putting people on the street would address some of these issues. And it's what I'm seeing now is they're taking detectives, they're taking investigators, and they're removing them from those roles and putting them on the streets because we have to have people on the streets. We have to have people to respond to calls, violent calls, in-progress calls. But in doing so, those cases that were heading to detectives that led to investigation, so an example of the burglary of motor vehicles that I talked about. So these burglaries end up on an investigator's desk. He then looks into them. He clears this ring of burglaries and takes 10 people to jail and clears 300 burglar motor vehicles. Well, they're now in jail and the burglaries stop. So it's by his actions we've removed this group and now the burglars are down. They have gotten property back to the people. They have removed guns from off the street that were going to be used in illegal activities. So now you've taken that detective and now he's on patrol. These crimes aren't getting investigated or the one detective or few detectives that they've left behind, now their caseload has triple, quadrupled, if not higher. And that was a conversation I had with one of the Chicago homicide guys was I asked, how many cases are you lead on that you're the lead investigator that you're responsible for handling? And at any given time, he may have had a hundred cases. And I can tell you, coming from homicide, you having a hundred cases means that they are not getting the attention they need. There's people that are getting away with murder. There's people that you're not going to have time to put the effort into tracking down all those. And, and most likely all hundred are not linked with one another, even though some may be. 
And that's where it comes from working those cases and linking those things. But that's all the support system. When you have crime analysts that are working behind the scenes to link these things together, when you have investigators that are going out to talk to these individuals to try to investigate these crimes, if you've removed those people because of budget cuts and just focused on patrol, even though patrol is the backbone, is the front line of the system, without the support, without them being able to turn that stuff over for a finality to get it to prosecution, to remove those people, to have that impact society, it's going to increase crime. It's going to increase the violence in the city. And we've already seen that in those areas. So an example of this in uh, the Los Angeles Times, November 7th, they covered a story uh, saying that the Los Angeles Police Department come months going to downsize specialized unit and stop responding in person to traffic collision and other minor accidents or other minor incidents as part of this reorganization aimed at preserving patrol and the community engagement. So they didn't give out specific figures in reference to how they're going to reshuffle and reduce this size, but uh, they did say that they would be cutting uh, air support, robbery, homicide, gang, and narcotics division. Those departments uh, would reduce uh, its desk hours at its station, uh, cut special deployments in uh, popular areas such as Venice and Hollywood, uh, stop staffing teams that cover homeless issues. Uh, total will be 234 officers will move back into patrol. So again, 234 officers that were doing things as, as they even put in their article uh, for the homeless, uh, for popular tourist areas such as Venice and Hollywood, uh, and then cutting down or moving from those areas onto patrol people that were addressing narcotics, gang, homicide, robbery, and even cutting back on their air support with their uh, helicopters covering the city. So again, there's just, there's no way that that does not have a negative influence on the community, on uh, crimes going up. Uh, I just, I can't see how that's going to be of any benefit to the community. But uh, again, it, it's just um, a result of downsizing and cutting budgets and as I said before, going to address what has to happen, which is putting your frontline people out there. You have to have the officers to respond, but even there, they're talking about things that they will not be responding to in areas that they will not cover. So uh, I only see the end result of, of downsizing and uh, moving people out from where they were being effective as going to have an increase in, in violent crimes and property crimes and, uh, again, a lack of security and safety and feeling in the community and the job being. All right, so two recent uh, news articles, actually just this week from uh, November 12th and November 13th, is showing some of the results of, of this defunding. And some defunding is going on because of this uh, lack of conversation or community connection between the police and the community and in some areas of distrust and feeling that uh, that money could go elsewhere. But we also can't dismiss since March cities that rely on sales tax when businesses have been closed down, when people are not out spending money, 
when they've lost their jobs, there's been a huge financial impact overall just by COVID. And that's what we're seeing, at least that's what's been reported in New Orleans Police Department that is going to be facing a $16 million budget cut uh, next year. And in dealing with this, uh, they said that uh, most of the savings uh, come down from moves that have already been reduced spending by millions this year, uh, making officers take 26 unpaid days off, giving a 10% pay reduction to other employees, and leaving unfilled vacant positions they're considered non-crucial. Now, I've been around uh, police departments for a long time, and I don't know of too many positions that are non-critical positions that you can just not fill. Uh, most of us are working with skeleton crews. I have yet to ever meet a police department that says, no, we have plenty. Uh, we don't need any more. And that's your police officer on the street. And, and something that a lot of people, when we talk about budget and we consider how many officers that we ask for and, and need, and many times it's how many officers per population. And I've seen at times where they think about adding officers like, hey, we, we're going to add 30 extra officers. But in doing so, and they talk about having boots on the ground and able to respond to calls, but they don't do support staff. So you now have 30 extra officers that are responding to calls that are collecting evidence and property, but they don't increase the property room personnel that's going to be receiving this evidence, that's going to be getting it to the court, that's going to be destroying it when cases are dismissed. They're not increasing the records clerks that are going to be receiving these records, information requests from the increased calls, the clerks that are processing the tickets and the paperwork that goes with this. You ha now have 30 extra officers and the same amount of dispatchers that have 30 extra people that are coming across the radio. And it's just an arbitrary number of 30, but what I'm getting at is there's a foundation that supports the officers that are out there. And I've seen a trend where we add more officers without thinking about the support of detectives, CSIs, property room, records, dispatch. And I think that you have to take that in consideration while you're adding more people as the impact that that's going to happen. Now, another thing when they've talked about defunding the police is these, these specialized units, I guess you would call them. So New York City, uh, they're going to try something, plans to test out a program where dispatchers send out EMS and mental health crisis workers instead of police officers, making it the latest city to attempt a uh, pivot away from policing as a cure-all. So the mental health team will work into, um, into the high-need communities uh, starting in February. Now, Here's my take on that. I We've, in Montgomery County, have police officers at Precinct 1, Constable Philip Cash's office, and they are trained to handle mental health crisis. And when police officers have responded to a scene and they believe that they have a person that is in crisis, they will call a specialized unit out there. Now, what they're proposing in New York is that the police never come. It's just a mental health worker that's going out there. 
And there are certainly times that someone is in a mental health crisis that is nonviolent, that it, it, it may work out for them, right? Um, I, however, have seen people in mental health crisis that is, you know, it's not that they're, you know, waving a sword around, waving a gun around, but they are not in their right mind at the moment and they're going to fight. I can tell you that every naked man, naked female call where they're walking down the road uh, that I have come across has never just hopped in the car and said, okay, take me to get some help. Uh, They've usually uh, fought, resisted, uh, you know, it's, it's not normal behavior. That's why it's a mental health call, but the results of that and putting, again, they may be greatly trained on how to handle mental health crisis. You know, and I, I saw a joke on the internet, uh, just among police officers when they had brought this up and, uh, basically saying, uh, yeah, let's see how they handle the, the person walking down the street with the samurai sword covered in their own, uh, feces, uh, screaming that, you know, they've been sent from God, certainly a mental health crisis, but I'm thinking you need the police. Right. Um, and it's, it's been a, a conversation over how to handle mental health calls because we arrive with an idea of detaining, uh, certainly when there's a weapon involved, the fact that we've had situations in which, a mental health call ended in an officer-involved shooting because the person has a weapon, because there's that interaction. And there's debate over it's the fact of an authority figure being there that has caused this. I would say it's not. I don't think that they're in their right mind at the time, and it really wouldn't matter whether it was a police officer walking up to them or it was this mental health worker walking up to them. I certainly agree with the way that you approach the conversation that you have, the demeanor that you approach them with plays a factor. But when that person has a gun, when that person has a knife and a police officer has had to end up uh, getting in a violent confrontation with them, I'm not sure that it's going to end as well for the mental health unit that's responding. I could be completely wrong. This may be a great idea and we may uh, be able to have officers responding to to other issues uh, to address, but we'll see how that works out. Like I said, it it appears that we're doing a lot of a lot of situations that uh, again the researchers will love because these are things we have never done before um, by decriminalizing hard drugs, uh, by removing officers from helping in mental health situations and uh, having others respond to it. I'm not sure where they've come up with deciding how many they need uh, and how much money to take away from the police and funding these systems. But it's, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see where those go. Uh, I would expect if they are not doing well in the next year, we're going to see some, some different, uh, funding some different type of legislature come through to handle. Uh, so change gears here. We have uh, in the Houston Chronicle here in Texas, uh, we have Texas lawmaker proposing a ban on no-knock warrants throughout the state of Texas. And I know that that's uh, been a conversation that's been going on 
as to whether we need no-knock warrants and the, the purpose behind them. Uh, they're not used that often. They're used in specific situations, but the case that they're quoting on, on the need for it, uh, I think is, is wrong. So uh, the, the person who is putting this forward is uh, a representative of Gene Wu uh, to ban these no-knocks throughout the state. And they're referring to a botched drug raid that led to the death of two Houston residents and murder charges for the police officer. And this is where, uh, again, I think that they're, they're referring, there's, there's plenty of other cases to discuss whether no knock or knock. This particular case is something totally different. The reason that you have murder charges for a police officer, the reason of this botched raid is that a police officer lied. In this particular case, you had a narcotics unit that was lying and making up arrest warrants, making up false information to go into houses that he believed drugs were in without any type of probable cause. And on this occasion, he didn't even write a bad warrant. He hit the wrong house. So he had already been lying on search warrants on this particular occasion. He actually went into the wrong house. Someone's coming in the house and uh, obviously uh, the homeowner and grabbed their guns. Police already had their guns, which led to the death of these uh, two residents. Again, I'm not sure that a no-knock or knock warrant would have made any difference in this case. Uh, you know, a knock warrant is a knock and announce. It doesn't mean that the police are not coming in the door. It means that they're going to knock, they're going to make their presence known, and then they're still coming in. A no-knock means that just that. They don't have to make their presence known for uh, high-risk situations, which is why it is very rarely used. So, uh, again, uh, it's, it's certainly up for debate. There's some uh, questions on when to use them, when not to use them, if we should even allow them anymore. But the case that they're referring to here uh, really doesn't apply in reference to that, that particular uh, legislature. So uh, our legislature in Texas is about to start. I know that there are many bills that have already been presented. Uh, we've talked to a couple of local legislatures on correcting or uh, addressing, I should say, some of the current laws that need to be addressed. Uh, we proposed uh, some in reference to destruction of property sitting in our property rooms uh, based on uh, old laws that date back to 1977 uh, in which uh, we were unable to uh, destroy alcohol uh, on MIPs. If you stop someone with a minor in possession, furnishing alcohol to minors, anything like that, and that alcohol ended up in your property room, in Texas, we could not destroy that. Uh, we can destroy marijuana, heroin, meth. Uh, we can destroy any other piece of property. But when it came to alcohol, we had to actually call, and still, we still have to call. It's it's currently in the books. We have to call the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission to come and get the alcohol. Now, I'm sure pretty much everybody knows how that goes. Uh, we call, and they don't come. They're not coming uh, because... You're calling a state agency that certainly has better things to do than come and pour out your six-pack of beer or 12-pack or whatever you have sitting there, right? So we're trying to adjust that so that we're following the law. Uh, we can get rid of 
property sitting in our property rooms, no different than any other piece of property that's there. Another piece of legislature that we've uh, hopefully are moving forward on, we've uh, reached out to our local uh, state representative in our area, which is Steve Toth, to address. And that is uh, not only the alcohol legislation, but also uh, with property rooms, anything that we have found items, abandoned items, we have to put it in the newspaper, which is the Houston Chronicle. The, the other day I went to the Houston Chronicle to find the uh, legal notice section and I can't find it. You go to the website that you have links for class value links for everything. I cannot find the public notice section. So for me to try to even locate it uh, for its purpose, the purpose is to get these items back to the, to the owner if they've lost these items. So we've proposed in law for us to actually be able to post it on a website, post it on social media. When we use our Facebook, Twitter, our next door that actually reaches out to our community, we hit way more people than are looking at the Houston Chronicle. And I'm not even sure who receives a, a physical paper anymore. Uh, most people are looking at their news online. Uh, most are hitting some of the local uh, uh, news sources, uh, such as we have the Conroe Courier, which just covers our area here in Conroe, and the Woodlands Online, different, different news sources. They're very specific to their area of town. Us being able to reach out to them and, and put those things uh, in our social media and stuff, I think it's going to reach way more people. But again, it's, it's an old law. It's been there for a while and, and we're going to try to address that in this legislature. Uh, we already have, um, a legislature hadn't even started as far as the legislative meeting, but the legislators have been working. They already have numerous bills that they're putting forward. Uh, I've tried to reach out to uh, another representative to talk about some legislatures. They said they're not even accepting uh, bills anymore which uh, to a point I, I find uh, a little strange considering that uh, I know most of our representatives were reelected a couple of weeks ago. They already were holding the position. So uh, not that by any means they stopped working during that time. They're working the whole time through, uh, but they really uh, just won their election uh, two weeks ago and are not taking any uh, new citizens recommendation for legislature. So uh, I'm not sure at what point you got to reach to, to get that stuff to them. Uh, so it's in a timely manner, but uh, I've asked for that answer too. It, it, what the best time for us to reach out to our legislatures when we see a law or see something that needs to be addressed. Uh, another law that we've, we've put forward uh, here in Texas, we do not have a hands-free driving law. Uh, there's not even a need to discuss how, dangerous it is for distracted drivers we've, we've seen them all the time where they're where they're texting on their phone where they're doing something on their phone in their car we do have a a law that does not allow people to text and drive the way that it's written however there are so many loopholes uh, as far as how the law is written you cannot text and drive uh, you can check your email you can check facebook you could uh, uh, Put something on Twitter. Uh, you could read your local news on the way to your job. You can do all this while driving. None of that is illegal, which is insane to me. But as long as you don't text, as uh, long as you're not texting, you're not you're not breaking the law. You can do all the other stuff. So hopefully um, we'll have uh, one of our representatives or senators pick up that law, uh, making a couple of changes so that uh, we can keep our drivers safe and less distracted drivers. 
Uh, it's certainly a concern. We, we see it all the time uh, when someone's coming into your lane, moving out of your lane, uh, and the accidents that are occurring from this. As we're wrapping up this episode, don't forget to check out the International Bloodstain Conference that's currently going on virtual. I think there's uh, maybe only one day left of it, but it's uh, $30, uh, some great instructors from around the world. I know it's been going on all hours of the night, and I know that they're recording some of those. So even if you did miss the first couple of days, I bet you can probably catch a couple of those on recording. So check it out. Hopefully we'll get back to some in-person conferences here soon. But in the meantime, that's just a, a great uh, amount of information for very low cost. So if you are in bloodstain discipline or you have an interest in bloodstain discipline, uh, go and check that out. We certainly like to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford, uh, for always taking care of law enforcement, just providing a great relationship between us and the community by sponsoring this show. And to our listeners out there that uh, join us every week uh, for our subject matter experts talking about these current and future topics facing law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigation. If you have a topic you'd like to see on the show, if you would like to be on the show, if there's something that you would like addressed, or certainly if you'd like to sponsor the show, uh, please reach out to me, dan at crimescenetoday.com, and we look forward to seeing you next week.